The human eye, which you see up there on the screen, is really quite a wonder, isn't it? 107 million light-sensitive cells in each one of your eyes. You know, if one of your eyes was a digital camera, it'd be a 576 megapixel camera. Try and put that in your iPhone. It's not going to work. And, and your eyes, and, and the whole process of vision and seeing and understanding what you're seeing is so labor-intensive. Your brain, they estimate, about 50% of your brain is occupied just seeing, helping you to see. It's, it's really an incredible thing. And, and in the Bible... Sight, your eyes, is not only an amazing part of God's creation, it's a regular metaphor for understanding or spiritual perception. And often talks about us in kind of a couple of different categories. Either we're darkened and unable to see or our eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God. Well, our prayer in this series is that like the blind men, who are on the roadside that we'll meet later on in this chapter, we too will call on Jesus to open our eyes. Open our eyes so that we see. Open our eyes so that we understand. Open our eyes that we might accurately focus our lives on the truth and the beauty of Jesus Christ. So I'm excited that we are starting this series today. I'm excited that you're already in Matthew chapter 20 because in Matthew 20, Jesus tells a very important story. But I got to level with you. I don't think you're going to like it. <laughs> I really don't. I, I read it earlier this week multiple times and I found that it kind of made me uncomfortable and I didn't like it. I... You're probably not sure what I'm saying yet, so let me try and help you understand with a couple of stories. As I was growing up, I had really good parents, and I had a brother, and they tried to raise us in a very fair way. If my brother got a cookie after dinner, I got a cookie after dinner. If my brother got to add a sport in a season into his schedule, my mom would make sure that I could add that sport into my season, too. When it came to things like college, my brother, when he was going to college, uh, he talked with my parents and they kind of negotiated a deal. We'll help out with this much of your college education. And three years later, when I graduated high school, I got the same deal. When my brother got married, my parents helped pay and they paid a certain amount of money that helped with the wedding day. Well, a year later, when Rebecca and I wanted to get married, we got the same monetary help. And... It seems like, I mean, I'm not sure what it would have been like if I had chosen not to go to college or not to get married, how that all would have added up. But I do know this, if I didn't finish my dinner, I didn't get the cookie. <laughs> but generally, if I did the same thing and I put in the same effort, I'd get the same reward. And in general, doesn't that just sound kind of nice? Doesn't that sound right? If you're agreeing with that, then you're proving me right, because I knew you're not going to like this story. <laughs> but I agree with you, but you're not going to like this story. So let me tell you another one, a different one. Uh, my freshman year of college, let's see if you like this any better, I took a science class, and we were given a group project. 
And the three of us started getting onto this project is on avalanches. We had to do a presentation of the class. And so three of us started doing the research. Three of us started doing the writing of the report and working on the model and the, uh, the visuals. Three of us. But there's another person in the group. We'll just call him Matt. That was his name. <laughs> and he didn't do the research or help with the writing, or help with the model, or any of those things. But on the day that we gave the presentation, we let him say avalanches and tell, I think, one fact we'd written down for him. And afterwards, you know what? Three of us got an A on that, but so did Matt. Oh, I can tell by your reaction that that gets under your skin, doesn't it? We don't like when stuff like that happens. We don't like when our sibling gets a better car than we got. We don't like it when the coworker gets the promotion even though we've been there longer. We don't like it when we look on Instagram and our old classmate's family looks happier than ours does. <laughs> ah, some of that stuff, it, it bugs us. And, that, and that's fine if it does. It just proves to me, though, that you're probably not going to like this story. And granted, when I say you are not going to like it, I don't mean everyone. I just mean all the humans in the room. <laughs> But alas, it is God's word. So even if we don't like it, even if it has something piercingly true that's going to cause us to change the way we think or to deal with a central issue in our heart, we need to read it. And God has something for us today. So please follow along with me as I read in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It says, For the kingdom of heaven... Is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you, go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, in the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last, they worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Did it get under your skin a little bit? The question that this passage seeks to answer, I believe, is this, that as we follow Jesus, 
how are we to think about our work for him? And what are we to think of our reward going to be from him? Or to put it more bluntly, we're asking the question, am I going to get what I deserve? And the big idea, because sometimes I like putting the answer out there before we get there, is this. God is wildly generous, but it's not always how you think. God is wildly generous, but it's not always how you think. Now, our story begins in typical Jesus fashion. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, a lot of times you and I, we get stuck on the word heaven, but really it's a way to talk about what are God's ways of operating right now in the life of the believer and carrying on into eternity, as opposed to, let's say, how the world operates. It's going to be different. And this story is going to center around this master of a house, And so we want to follow him because there's something about his conduct that's going to be vitally important for us to understand what this life in God's kingdom is like. Now this man, it says he has a vineyard and the grapes are ready for harvest, so he needs to go and get workers. He goes to the town square, the marketplace, and about 6 a.m., and he finds workers, some day laborers to hire. Now agricultural day laborers of the time did not have it good. They're considered less secure than servants or slaves. These unskilled, uh, uneducated workers had nobody to look out for them. And so they talk about terms of payment, and they agree on a denarius, a, a Roman measure of money. It was considered fair, a day's wage, potentially more than what unskilled laborers would actually expect, and then they head off to work. Three hours go by, so now it's 9 a.m., and the master of the house goes out to the marketplace, and he sees more men standing around, and so he says, go to my vineyard, join the others, and I'll pay you whatever is right, whatever is fair, I'll give to you. And and then they trust him, and they go. Now, they know they're getting a late start. They'd expect to get some sort of uh, less uh, amount than the others, but at least they'd get paid. But that's not the end. The scenario repeats itself at noon and at 3, and then finally at 5 p.m., one hour till quitting time, he comes and finds more people standing around. He says, what in the world are you doing here? And they just respond, no one's hired us. Now, we don't know why no one's hired them. It's possible nobody else wanted them, or maybe they're the least desirable of the bunch, but, but the man, he doesn't refute their reason. He doesn't make them feel bad for it. He also doesn't haggle price with them. This is what I'm going to pay. He just says, go. Go to the vineyard. And they go. But I don't think they were ready for what came next. There's a comedian I used to listen to a while back, and he says this. I think it's funny. You can be the judge. He says, surprise parties are strange because people jump up and they yell the word surprise at the party. I came home to my house and you emerged from the furniture. You don't have to tell me how to feel. (laughs) In Jesus' parables, surprise is a key feature to look for. As you're reading through, if you understand the culture and the time of it, everything's kind of working out like it should. And then whammo, some new idea jumps out of the furniture Well, in this parable, there's two surprising moments that are really followed up each time by two very unsurprising moments. And it comes as the men are are rounded up finally at the end of the day in order to get paid. 
starting with the last group. And here's the first surprise. The undeserving get a generous reward. Those people who had only been there for an hour, they got paid a full day's wage. They got paid at least 12 times what they deserved. That's wild. And that's crazy. That is a terrible way to run a business. If you want to be consistent or make a profit, but that's what the man does. So what comes next is not so surprising. The, the first group expects, seeing that, what they're getting paid, they expect to get paid more. Well, this is going to be great. I mean, wouldn't you, if you were the head salesperson of a department and you happen to notice the bonus check of the intern, wouldn't you think, all right, I know what I'm going to get. It's going to be proportionally greater, right? But here's surprise number two. They were paid exactly the same. It's right there in verse 10. But each of them also received a denarius. And then finally, not very surprising, they were not happy about that. Verse 11 and 12, it says, And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They're saying, come on. We worked all day, 11 hours more than them. It was hot. I was sweaty. My back hurts. These guys just come for an hour when it's already cool out? And you pay them the same amount. I mean, they just can't believe it. They were not happy about it, and I don't think you would be either. I mean, it feels unjust and unfair and unright, if that was a word. <laughs> it's the guy in the group project who did nothing but got the A. It's the new guy at work who gets the department-wide raise the rest of you earned, that you earned before he was even hired. It's the dad who finally takes the kids out one day to the supermarket to give his wife a break, and every single stranger there thinks he's a superhero even though she does it all the time. And something inside of us, it just bristles at that notion, and three little words come into our mind. It, it's not fair. All oh, those three words. Three words you don't even have to teach to your kids. They figure it out. It seems to source from our very being. Just this week, my wife, Rebecca, gave some mango to our three-year-old uh, while the older kids were finishing some schoolwork, and when they were done, they were expecting that we were going to get some of that mango, too. Well, the problem was, she had already finished hers, and now she sees the rest of them getting some, and she doesn't have it, and she's, ah, she's crying because she wants mango. She doesn't understand she already got it. Well, she understands. She still tastes it, but she wants more. It's not fair. But if we take from them to give to her, well, now they're going to be crying because it's not fair. At the core of our hearts, we scream, I want what's mine. I want what I deserve. And we look out at other people and we go, I want you to get what you deserve too. Told you you wouldn't like it. It's bothersome. It's disturbing, it, it seems wrong, and before we can look at the master's response, I think it's helpful to know why Jesus is telling this story in the first place. You see, back in the end of chapter 19, after talking with Jesus, this rich man leaves, and he's really sad. Sad because he wasn't willing to choose Jesus over his own love for his stuff. 
And this prompts Peter to ask a question on his heart. Verse 27 of chapter 19, then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. So what then will we have? And you see, that's our big question too. In fact, Peter is, is here sitting with us and he shares your thoughts and he's the same kind of thoughts that get bothered by this parable. He hears that the rich will have a hard time entering the kingdom and then he says, well, wait a minute, what about us? I mean, we're, we're doing it right, right? We've left everything, we've worked hard, we're the early adopters, and am I gonna get what I deserve? In one sense, he's, he's not wrong. There's an incredibly generous reward for those who are following Christ. Jesus answers Peter saying, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. We're talking big time reward, over the moon, wildly generous restitution for things, or opportunities, or relationships lost. It's the idea that no sacrifice in the end will actually have felt like a sacrifice. Nothing given up will really be gone. No life that looks lean in the here and now will be anything but full, abundant, and eternal, which means of such a quality that only God can give. But, then comes the but. Verse 30, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and last first. Now, if there wasn't the but there, which implies a contrast, I would imagine Jesus is talking about the, the rich unbeliever who has a lot now, but then won't, and the poor believers who don't, but then will. But because of that contrast, I think Jesus is giving a cautionary corrective towards where Peter's way of thinking is headed. As if Jesus is saying, be careful where your thoughts will lead you, Peter. Because if you're taking your ideas of honor and earned reward into my kingdom, you're going to be surprised. It's not quite so linear as you think. In fact, I have a story I'd like to tell you but you're probably not going to like it. And so we go back to the master and the vineyard and the workers and the unequal effort with the equal pay and the first laborer's complaint. And now the master's reply, chapter 20, verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The master is saying, Un unfair? unjust weren't you there didn't we discuss this ahead of time isn't that exactly what i gave you you needed a day's wage and I, I provided that for you just like we agreed it's brutally simple in its logic even though probably not so satisfying in the moment but it conveys this truth about God's rule in the kingdom, that he is a God that fulfills his promises and will never be seen as less than fair. 
Psalm 111 verse seven says this, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. But that's not all. Here in his next answer, I think he really gets to the heart of the matter. Verses 14 and 15, he says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? You see, if the master had only hired the first group, they had agreed on a denarius for the day, and he never hired anyone else, and then they got paid the exact same thing they got paid, do you think they would have been content with it? I think so. The difference in the scenario is not what they got paid, but the fact that he brought others along that they didn't think deserved it. And they thought it made them deserve more, which is entitlement. But they didn't actually deserve more. They just felt less special because others got the same thing, which is comparison, which then turned into jealousy. But what's it to them what this man does with his money? Why should they want him to be less generous than he is? And why would we want God to be less generous than he is? Because please remember, in the end, we're not talking about day laborers and daily wages, but rather about following Christ and working with him and the divine blessings that he chooses freely to pour out now and to carry on into eternity. And yet still, you and I, we, we are here and regularly, we are asking these questions. Are we getting what we should now? Are others getting more? Is God being fair, and will I get what I deserve? And so the answers to that really starts with recognizing these two truths. And the first one is this. God is wildly generous. He's wildly generous. You see, Jesus answers these questions by placing the focus on the generous God who gives radically to his people. Every single last one of them, no matter if you were part of the OG posse of Jewish fishermen who left their nets at home to follow him, or you were a new up-and-coming Gentile Roman soldier, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you followed him in the first century or in the 21st century. It doesn't matter if you were singing Jesus loved me when you were five and you stayed on the straight and narrow or if you finally gave your life to him at 45 or 65 or 95 after a life of indulging sin. If you have trusted Christ with your life, if you have been rescued and made new in Jesus, then God has a work for you and he has great reward. Because he's the kind of father who doesn't skimp on his children, he gives us more than we deserve. Over and over, Jesus tries to teach us how radical and seemingly odd God's grace is. He portrays God as the shepherd who appears reckless as he leaves the 99 to search for one and then he celebrates. He portrays him as the father who appears kind of disgraceful as he runs toward and embraces his lost son and then throws a lavish party for him. And then finally, God, he shows as the master of a house who appears uncalculatingly wasteful as he pours out wages on workers who nobody else wanted and pays them what they didn't deserve. Now, is God actually reckless? No. 
He's completely sovereign in his rescue. Is God actually disgraceful? No, his abounding love and mercy bring him greater honor. Is God actually uncalculatingly wasteful? No, but his grace simply defies our math and it goes beyond our sense of selfish fairness. But Jesus tells us the the stories that fight against our worldly wrapped up sensibilities and it breaks these comfortable categories because God's love and his grace and his generosity is actually that big. And here's the kicker. Jesus knows that truthfully, all of us, disciples included, are in those last group of workers. You see, I think Jesus tells this parable about Christian service not because the disciples were the first group of workers, but because they were in danger of feeling like they were. Where in reality, they still got far more than they deserved. Because as Jesus described it, the base level, the bottom floor of generosity in God's kingdom, it's not a day's work for a day's wage. It's not even a 12-fold return. It's a calling into something where he is pleased to give a hundredfold an eternal life. It is more than we can imagine. It's not driven by our performance, but by God's grace. And that's where our focus should be. God is wildly generous. But, and the second truth is this, it's not always how you think. Because Jesus, again, brings in this phrase right at the end, after he tells the parable, verse 16, he says, so the last will be first and the first last. The second answer Jesus gives to our question of getting what we deserve is to take the focus off of your ability, our ability to figure it all out. Because as soon as we start to get impressed with what we've done for God or or think we actually know what others deserve, we've started to lose sight of God's grace toward us. And we risk drifting into entitlement and comparison and jealousy. And in a sense, really, we start to close our eyes to what God has done in us and is pleased to do around us. And I don't say these things lightly because I know there are things in this life that are really frustrating and really feel unfair. Not just talking about the newer cars or bigger houses. No, I think the real pain comes when we see others who in our minds seem to have a greater joy in the Lord. And we get jealous. Or we see others and they seem to have less emotional or relational distress or anxiety and we get jealous it's the thinking that man i've worked so hard for jesus and i've been faithful to obey but my marriage is on the rocks or my kids want nothing to do with me and yeah sure sometimes you wouldn't mind if god's blessing is turned into physical prosperity because well it seems like there's a lot of christians who have that too but if we start to think that it's the number of Bible studies or service projects or a moral behavior or souls won or a theological education, that that will then demand something specific from God, we've turned it into a transactional exchange and we're missing out on the generous relationship that God wants with us. And we're missing out on the chance to celebrate with others. So what's it going to take for us to stop comparing, to stop trying to measure our performance and our blessings against others? Because if we continue, we risk being the character of another parable, the older brother and the prodigal son. 
who had the Father with him the whole time and had the blessings, but, well, it didn't look like what he thought he wanted, and he begrudged his dad for celebrating his lost son who came back. Do you know that more literal English translation of verse 15 where it talks about begrudging or jealous is actually just two words, evil eye or bad eye. Now, it means the same thing. It's, it's an idea of jealousy, but it's interesting in light of our imagery for this series that even when God has opened our eyes and the mercy of his salvation, that we can start to lose our vision because we focused on what the culture says is important or what our sinful heart does. But if we focus on God's wild generosity, remembering that it's not always what we think, so we stop trying to measure or compare, well, that will actually free us to go ahead and be who God made us to be and find the purpose that he called us for and do it. Your skills, not theirs. Your talents, not theirs. Your circumstances, not theirs. Your people, the the people God has placed in your path, not theirs. To be faithful what God has called you to be and to do and to cheer on everyone else as they do theirs. That is the freedom to which God's generosity can open our eyes. Because, you know, the funny thing is, you you can't figure out what's fair. My parents, I thought they were pretty good at it and tried the best they knew how. They couldn't either. Example is my brother, when he turned 16, they let him drive this 1978 Toyota Corona. It was pretty cool. Three years later, when I turned 16, they sold that and they bought a 1982 Toyota Corona. So, technically, I got a car that was a year newer than what my brother got at age 16. However, mine was an automatic, so I didn't get to learn how to drive a manual transmission. So we both sent our counseling bills to our parents (laughs) to make it fair. But we can never really make things fair, can we? And even if we did, if our eyes are bad, we'll always find an angle to be the victim if we wanna be, even when we're dealing with God. But here's the underlying truth. You don't want God to give you what you deserve. Or as Craig Blomberg writes, we are fools if we appeal to God for justice rather than grace. For in that case, we'd all be damned. Instead, God gives us far greater and far more than we deserve, some now and a lot later. So let's trust him to be faithful to his grand promises and rejoice as he offers it to others freely too. God is wildly generous, but it's not always how you think, and that's a good thing. Now, I said our salvation wasn't a matter of performance. It's not our performance. It's not earned, but it was earned, just not by us, and there was a price, and we just didn't have to be the ones to pay it. Today, on this Sunday, we celebrate communion, which is when those with faith in Christ are invited to Uh, come to the master's vineyard to drink and to eat, remembering the death of Jesus, his blood poured out for us, his body broken in our place, that he took our poverty and gave us his riches far more than we deserve. Please join me in in a prayer of confession. Awesome and compassionate God, you have loved us with unfailing, self giving mercy. 
but we have not loved you as we ought. You constantly call us, but we do not listen. You ask us to love, but we walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped up in our own concerns. We condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, as you come to us in mercy, we repent in spirit and in truth. We admit our sin and gratefully receive your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. This morning, if you are a follower of Christ, you are welcome to the Lord's table. Please receive the elements and take the time to examine yourself and then wait as we take the bread and the cup together. This morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, I'd encourage you to just let the items pass as they are of no spiritual benefit to you. Instead, please take this time to consider what it is that Jesus has done and what is he offering to you even today because he's the only one who can give you more than you deserve. Ushers, please wait on us.